Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Read Like a Writer is the book's podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale, and Canongate, three independent publishers bringing the voices and the book recommendations of their authors to your ears. It's hosted by me, Anna Fielding, and in each episode you'll hear about the books closest to these authors' hearts, their latest projects, and learn a bit about their favourite independent bookshop too. Uh, this week, uh, it's another one that we're hosting from Edinburgh, highly appropriately, as we'll come to see. And we're here now with Ambrose Parry, or rather the two people who make up Ambrose Parry, which is Christopher Bookmeyer and Marissa Haitsman, who, in addition to writing together, are also husband and wife. Christopher has published books of crime fiction, largely set in Scotland, with the occasional diversion to outer space. He's won numerous awards, including the Scottish Crime Book of the Year for 2016's Black Widow. And, spanning across different formats, his book Bedlam was also turned into a video game, which Chris also wrote the script for. Marissa is a consultant anaesthetist, and has worked in the field for over 20 years. And it was her research for her master's degree in the history of medicine that inspired the plot of their new co-written novel, The Way of All Flesh. So, welcome both, and uh, thank you for battling the very heavy festival traffic over from Glasgow. Um... This is the city that your book is set in, but I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about the novel in general. Well, as you say, the novel is set here in Edinburgh in 1847, and it follows the exploits of a young medical student, Will Raven, who has just started his apprenticeship with the very renowned professor of midwifery, James Young Simpson. And he teams up with Sarah Fisher, Simpson's housemaid, as they investigate a number of suspicious deaths in the city. Sarah is, um, she's working as a housemaid, but she's a, a very capable, very intelligent, quite brilliant young woman, but also really very frustrated by the limitations that are placed upon her um, as a woman and as a working class woman at the time, the, the limitations upon her by in terms of how much she can educate herself. And even if she could educate herself, um, there wouldn't be much of a career to be had anyway. So um, it's a household where... The two of them are uh, very quickly at odds because she's quite um, jealous of the opportunities afforded to, to Raven, but Raven's quite a, a tortured soul anyway. But they come together in the household of, of James Young Simpson, um, who was a remarkable individual, but also uh, he had a very remarkable household. It's very atypical. It was not the Victorian household as we assume it to be from other works of fiction. Yes, because James Simpson is a real figure. Um, he, as you say, Marissa is a huge part of medical history. Um, 
and this this depiction of his household is pretty realistic as well, isn't it? It is. It's based on a, a lot of information gleaned from the multiple biographies written about the man. Um, he he had a household that included his own family, visiting relatives. He was often uh, often had visiting dignitaries to the city, staying with them. He also saw patients from his own house. So there was clinics running in the morning and there were multiple descriptions of patients spilling out of the waiting room into the hallway onto the stairs, um, which was remarked upon repeatedly as being quite an unusual thing. Also, the kids running around all the time, there wasn't this notion of them being seen and not heard. You know, they were were all over the the place by all accounts. um, encouraged to run about wild with the dog <laughs> as well. So oh, we, various we, pets that yeah, his wife didn't really approve of. Even a parrot. And we, we just kind of, that was one of the things that warmed us to, um, or made us warm to, to Simpson, this very, a, a notion of someone who's very much a family man, you know, that he would he would hurry home in between cases uh, to, to spend some time with the kids. And he wanted that time with the kids to be as rambunctious as possible. So this sort of thing made us think, well, this is not the, the, the portrait you normally get of some brilliant scientific or medical figure. Yeah, you get this idea, this sensation from reading your book of this really rather charming domestic chaos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> complete with, you know, sarcastic butler. And, uh, yeah, and we thought he would be someone who would be an inspiration to um, someone like Will Raven, who's a, you know, he, he's someone who's in need of inspiration at that point. He's lacking a, a, a good male role model shall we say and Sarah for all her frustration she is comes to realize she's in a a much better situation in terms of the house she's working in than she might find herself in Victorian Edinburgh. Um, You've mentioned Sarah's sense of frustration a couple of times now and what I thought was really strong throughout was um, there's a real strong sense of the historical restrictions or the unjustness on women of all classes um, from the prostitutes working in the old part of town to the housemaids to you know the unmarried sister of Mrs Simpson there's this sense of continual frustration and being stopped up or forced into extreme measures all the way through. Yeah I think that was that was certainly something um, that came across very strongly while I was reading the background material for the book and I think I think it, in reading some of the background material it was to- all too easy just to think that women accepted the role that had been given to them. And um, when I started writing about Sarah, I think I was perhaps slightly concerned. I was thinking about her with too much of a 21st century head. But then I started reading about Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley and the Vindication of the Rights of Women, which was the end of the 18th century. So I think the frustration felt by a lot of women was certainly not something that I dreamt up. I think it was always there, but just wasn't documented because the histories of or the social histories were often written by men, and then who wouldn't have even been aware that was part of the problem. Weren't even aware of how frustrated uh, women were because, for one thing, someone like Sarah, uh, an individual such as her, would not be in a position to voice her frustration for fear of it leading to harsh consequences, which would be dismissal from her position, yeah. and then without any references, she wouldn't really have. Any legal ways of making yes. a living anymore? Dismissed without character is, I believe, the phrase that Marissa uncovered. Which yeah, it's used in the book as well, yeah. which I actually thought was it. I'm glad you brought that up. I thought it was a wonderful turn of phrase. Mm. It's, it's almost like this stripping away of the self, isn't it? Not just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now, it's interesting as well. The other thing that I thought skewed towards a... Um, it's obviously, you know, a crime novel and a detective novel in some ways. Um, but what is being investigated, the deaths of these young women, um, I don't want to give too much away, but obviously several of the central characters work in the field of midwifery. Mm. Um, there's talk of kind of illegal abortionists and people trying to rid themselves of unwanted children in various different ways. Um, and that's kind of how the plot forms and is taken by... It, what was the... How did you come across that? Was that part of your research, Marissa? That was... I think um, certainly the antagonist in the book it was based on a, a real-life character from slightly later in the 19th century who was a doctor who, uh, for reasons best known to himself, he was an abortionist, but he, for reasons best known to himself, uh, liked to poison prostitutes. Um, and was eventually tried and convicted for it. And he had a very particular way of, of poisoning them. And I think that was probably the start of it. I think uh, I was interested in as, as well in, as exploring the problems for women at the time in terms of reproductive rights and the difficulty that they, they faced. The, the interesting thing I found about our antagonist was we were trying to represent the two sides of medicine, the humanitarian side, which we sometimes assume is always there, and then the the opposite of that were people who are in it for their own personal aggrandizement or for various other uh, less than humanitarian reasons. And we thought the antagonist represented that quite well. Moving on slightly, I mean, you also use the city as a much of a character. There's one point where it's described as having two faces like Janus you know, the, the proprietal, forward-facing, everything-is-respectable side, and um, then the disreputable, using prostitutes and dark deeds side. Um, and it's also bisected with the old town and the new town and the contrast between those. Um, was that a deliberate use of the two parts of the city? Oh, quite, quite definitely. Um, I think from the beginning, uh, one of the things that attracted us to Simpson as a, an individual was that he transcended two sides of the city. He was sought after by the aristocracy uh, as a medical practitioner, but he would minister to the poor in, off, in the old town and, and often not ask for payment. Um, and I, I think he was very consciously aware of the divides in Edinburgh at the time, and we wanted that to be tangible, you know, physically, and that the, that Raven has spent his student years in the, the old town near the university, and, and he aspires towards this um, more genteel and, and, and privileged um, locus of the old of the new town, which where literally when he crosses the bridge, everything is, is better. He, he, in his mind, even the people even walk a little straighter, and we wanted to reflect that. And it's, it's a recurring um, story of Edinburgh, is of the, the two sides of Edinburgh, um, because you... Preceding that, you get the story of Deacon Brodie, which was part of the inspiration for Jekyll and Hyde, you know, very um, well-to-do uh, religious figure who by by night was, was up to all sorts of nefarious activities and was ultimately hanged for it. Um, and actually, uh, just to, to bring it back to Simpson, as everything always does, um, Robert Louis Stevenson was a close friend of, of one of Simpson's sons. 
I think the other thing that interested me was the idea of the kind of financial split, the poor of the old town, the rich of the new town. And what I loved about Simpson was he really didn't care about money very much. He was, he being quite of quite humble stock himself, I think he was very, um, he very much enjoyed his, his time spent with upper class patients. I think he got a lot out of that, but he didn't really care about the money. There's this great story about um, how he stopped a rattling window with a £10 note that was found later and how his Jarvis the butler had to go through his pockets at the end of the day to kind of collect all the money just stuffed in there. Um, and his wife often complained that he was wont to spend his time with the poor and forget to collect the fees from the patients who had any money. And it was one of those things that, again... You don't know how much of this is strictly true or whether some of it's apocryphal, but I just love the, the character of the man who uh, loved what he did and didn't really care about the financial implications quite so much. It's quite um, interesting because a few of those stories are ones that have made it into the book as well. And I was wondering how how you went about that blend of fact and fiction. Do you feel a responsibility to the... <laughs> Marissa really does. Yes, <laughs> I, I, is... <laughs> I definitely did. Uh, in fact, it was a very interesting process in trying to to deal with the, the massive amount of historical material that there is on Simpson and trying to turn it into a novel. It was a, quite a tricky proposition. And I was finding it quite difficult to kind of fictionalise a lot of things. And as Chris had to keep reminding me that it is fiction, you are allowed to kind of make up the bits that you don't know. And uh, But I was very strict about not veering too far away from the actual historical uh, facts. How did that work for you, Chris, being someone who's always dealt in fiction? Um, well, one of the great privileges of it was that I'd always liked the idea of writing a historical novel, but I've been quite prolific and I didn't feel I had the luxury of time that would be necessary to spend the time that uh, would be appropriate and necessary to research a historical novel. So it was quite a luxury to have someone do it for me, but not just do, it, do the research on my behalf, but to bring to it a perspective that's entirely informed by having been an anaesthetist. Because I think there was things that Marissa focused upon in what she chose to, to focus upon in her research and also, more importantly, what elements of that research she chose to um, concentrate upon for, for fiction and for the drama. She saw drama in things that I think many researchers wouldn't have realised the significance of because of, of um, I think, just the, um, the small dramas of all of these uh, obstetric cases, these obstetric procedures that... I think having having worked as a, an anaesthetist and having worked in medicine for 20 years, she understood what would be going through the doctor's mind during those procedures. I think uh, anyone else writing it might have just described what went on, but m wouldn't have known what the stakes were or what the um, what sort of emotions were, were going through uh, the, the heart of, of a, an apprentice or indeed an experienced doctor. Uh, so it meant that I, I wasn't, presented with some huge body of work and then asked to write a story. I was, um, <laughs> we got to the stage where Marissa had accumulated all this and started to sketch out characters and sketch out the story um, and, and got fed up waiting for me uh, to finish my, my preceding novel and just kind of started to um, write the book herself. And eventually I, I sort of 
caught up a little and, and um, wrestled with it myself for a while and then we would sit down and, and between us work out where we thought the story ought to go. Although I think we did have to be quite disciplined, as I said, there was so much material. But in the end, there were the the little stories, the historical stories had to fit in with the plot, not the other way around. And I think that's when we realised that's what we were doing. That's when we, we really started to make progress with it. Mm. So any story that's in there had to justify its place yeah. in order to fit in with the plot it and the themes. It couldn't just be there because we liked it. I mean, that was we, we did kind of argue about that a wee, a wee bit. You know, there were certain instances it had, if a story served a, a purpose in terms of driving the plot or telling you something about the characters, it could stay in, but there was no anecdotes just shoehorned in there. Although, Although it was tempting. <laughs> <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I actually finished it off uh, on my first night in Edinburgh, so snuggled in bed with pelting down rain outside, and uh, I thought it was brilliant. Um, If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're going to talk about the books that inspired you in the writing process as well. Um, the first one that you mentioned is This Thing of Darkness by Harry Thompson. Um, it was his debut novel written just a couple of years before he sadly died at mm. a very young age of 45. Yeah. Um, but it's also a novel that's also set in the mid-1800s, as is yours, uh, and it also involves real people, this time on the HMS Beagle. Um, could you tell us a bit about kind of 
what that novel means to you in the context of writing this one? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I think it was a, a really remarkable book. I thought it, it, it took real historical characters and events and fictionalised them in such an intriguing and entertaining way. And although Charles Darwin was obviously part of the Beagle expedition, the book really was about Fitz Robert Fitzroy, who was captain of the Beagle. And it it was just the most enlightening thing that I had read in such a long time. And when I, afterwards, when I looked into what was true and what was not true about the book, there was so much of it was based on historical fact. I just thought it was a completely remarkable achievement. And to take something as as, as big and, and as well known as, as Darwin on the Beagle, you know, everyone would just assume, they'd think Darwin on the Beagle goes to the Galapagos Islands, you know, and... and and, and that's that's the kind of greatest hits of the story. But really, the the heart of the story was Fitzroy's battle with his own soul. You know, Fitzroy's struggle with his religious beliefs, because and Darwin's um, uh, struggle in realizing that the evidence that he was starting to uncover was uh, undermining his religious beliefs, and he was more open to that. And Fitzroy, however, really does um, he really does go through this crisis. Uh, of of faith because of it, and, and ultimately kind of uh, recoils to some extent. I mean, yes, yeah, so I think I think in the end he felt uh, guilty about facilitating the scientific discoveries that were made mm. uh, because it was in such conflict with his own beliefs. Yeah, and and it, it also though that, that you got such an amazing sense of being there. I think this was something that inspired us. Because a lot of uh, historical fiction sometimes reads as if the characters themselves know they're in history. <laughs> you know, yes, very it's like much the kind so. of well, we better hurry up because the Second World War is going to start in six <laughs> weeks. You know, uh, and whereas it was a a story where there was a real sense of of um, its own modernity at the time, the fact that there was these amazing scenes of uh, ships being caught in tropical storms and how that led to Fitzroy uh, ultimately. Uh, devising the the shipping forecast, you know the the, the means of of um, predicting weather and 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 pat sharing the information um, with with other mariners in the in the future. So it was it was just one of those books. You, all the way through it, you just every page you turned, there just seemed to be some new, uh, not just new adventure, but new perspective on um, on on a story you thought you told you'd heard told before. It's interesting you say that actually because looking at your second choice. Um, which is also sort of set in the 19th century. It's The Alienist by Caleb Carr. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking there's a certain thing about science in that period and the way people write about kind of Victorian intellectual life. And recently we've seen it in Sarah Perry with The Essex Serpent and A.S. Byatt's Possession. But this really wonderful Victorian sense of like, hey, let's just throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. (laughs) (laughs) This incredible kind of rush towards knowledge that was happening at the time. And some of it got dismissed and some of it became orthodoxy. Um, And The Alienist as well is very much part of that. Uh, I was also thrilled I learned something and I didn't realise an alienist was also a term for a psychiatrist at the time. Yes, yes. I think think the idea being that People who were suffering from uh, mental mental illness were alienated from their own true natures, which is why they were called alienists. And I, what I loved about the book was its uh, exploration of the scientific developments of the time. And basically, the main character 
um, the alienist himself, is basically undertaking psychological profiling in order to uncover a serial killer. And his the detectives who are working with him are using very early scientific methods such as early fingerprinting. And what I loved about the book was the confidence to take several pages to explain exactly what they were doing so that you understood the science of the time. And I thought that was really just wonderful. One of the things that sticks with me about The Alienist, though, was the, its depiction of New York at the time, of how the city really becomes a character. Um, I It was something we were... I think both inspired by when we first read it, but we read it about twenty odd years before we we tried to write our novel. But the um, this it was that it depicted um, that era in a, a way that was so unflinching, uh, but also depicted the ways in which society did flinch from it. That part of the problem in addressing some of the crimes, the uh, specifically child prostitution, was that uh, society did not want to acknowledge that this even happened. So the newspapers couldn't write about it. Politicians couldn't discuss it. The police were dealing with it, but they had to almost like pretend they weren't. Uh, and, and that element of it was, it was so shocking because it, it, um, it, sh- it shows you how the most powerful people were um, kind of blanching at the very notion of what, what was a truly horrific problem. But their own sensibilities... I mean, they were so disgusted with it that they'd rather it was going on and nobody told them than actually deal with it. Uh, and, and that, uh, I suppose that's like any good crime novel, it's when something forces that to the surface. And I think that, to me, was, was one of the most compelling things about it. It was genuinely shocking. Because the murder is uh, focusing on kind of young, very young male prostitutes who are also from immigrant backgrounds and kind of the kind of people that really wouldn't get any attention from the establishment at all. And you have the sort of central character, the doctor, uh, who kind of assembles his own crew of outsiders in a way to to get it done. Yes. Yeah. Because of the police corruption at the time and all these vested interests and not dealing with the problem properly, he did have to kind of form his own kind of squad of investigators. And uh, the the detectives who helped him were both Jewish, so they were they were held in a great deal of suspicion by other police officers. And he had a whole collection of um, people he had saved from the street. So there was a young boy who worked with him who had been saved. And he had a whole house full of children, I remember, who he had saved from the streets and various other, all his household staff, he had saved in some way. Um, it was really a very interesting combination of characters. That great sense in a crime novel of a crew of outsiders yeah. who've all got individual talents that, that we might be otherwise overlooked by the establishment, and but together they can be uh, threaded by a, an individual who's quite brilliant in yeah. order to, to solve a crime that otherwise would have gone unreported, never mind unsolved. It is a really brilliant trope, isn't it? It crops up again and again, from like, you know, the X-Men to the Wire. Yes, to, <laughs> yes. Um, I was also going to say, uh, you mentioned very briefly, you said, oh, when we read it years ago, do you often read the same books at a similar time? Um, only if something really grabs one of us and we're sufficiently able to persuade the other <laughs> of, <laughs> of its merit. I think we started to kind of uh, deviate a wee bit in the mm-hmm. last few years. Um I've always been a huge fan of historical fiction, 
Uh, and I don't know that you really have, Chris. I think um, I think we do have kind of differing tastes. So it is it is special books that we both read. Mm. I think, yeah. Well, I'm glad the Alienist was uh, one of the ones that was special enough to make it across the boundaries. <laughs> Now on to, well, I think if we were Desert Island Discs, this would have counted very much as a terrible rule breaking because <laughs> you've actually snuck several books in under the guise <laughs> of one. And uh, Chris, down by your feet, there's a, a quite a hefty library of the three uh, books that comprise Neil Stevenson's The Baroque Cycle. Mm. Um, can you tell me a bit about why you love them so much? To me, The Baroque Cycle is the single greatest achievement in 21st century fiction. I, I um, actually have to preface it by talking about the books for which it all forms as a, a prequel because it was a book called Cryptonomicon that Neil Stevenson published in about 2001, um, which is kind of about the Second World War uh, cryptography and, and code breaking and code making. And it says that somehow he seemed to be inspired to go back and write the the history of the ancestors of the characters uh, who appeared in uh, Cryptonomicon, but also writing uh, the history of, I suppose, the kind of ancestry of computing. Um, he was inspired by uh, finding out about the likes of Leibniz and, and um, uh, scientists and thinkers of, of the time who, who did start to think about problems and think about science in a way that was uh, uh, that anticipated, I suppose, um, computer technology. And he, but he fills, like all of his work, he fills it with very kind of uh, geeky end jokes. So there's um, a character called Root who appears in Cryptonomicon and he, everyone else's ancestors appear in the Baroque cycle, but Enoch Root becomes apparent in uh, Quicksilver. It's the same person, and it, it's because Quicksilver is a, partly about um, scientific inquiry that strays into alchemy, and, and he is someone who may actually have found uh, some sort of alchemical property to, to keep himself young. Um, but what I loved about it was that it blended historical figures and historical discovery. Um, so a, a crucial character in it is Sir Isaac Newton. Um, Hook is in there, uh, and... and there's the, the reconstruction of London after the fire. And it, you just felt every time you, you read a chapter, you learn something else, um, but not just in a, in a way that's it's not like some guided tour. It's, it's, it's all pertinent to character and to plot. Um, so it, it, what drives it most is that it is a, a swashbuckling adventure. It, it starts with the, I suppose, the, the time of the restoration and the beginnings of the Royal Society, or what became the Royal Society. And in that respect, it is a history of modern thinking, because it, it gives you the history of modern banking, uh, modern philosophy, um, modern science. Uh, even it, it gives you such a, a wealth about etymology as well. For instance, where the word banking comes from, <laughs> you know, that it, it was to do with a Spanish word for a bench, wasn't it? They, they would um, set up a bench and so you just, you feel like you're immersed in it. And actually, it, it goes on for these three colossal volumes. Um, but by the end of it, you kind of wish he would just keep writing the rest of history. <laughs> because he brings it to life like, like no other work I've ever read. 
It's interesting using the phrase bring it to life because I'm someone who's always you know, learned a lot from fiction. I think a lot of the facts I pick up about the world have come from reading novels. Mm. I think sometimes novels can be undervalued as a way of, of learning about the world, not mm. just about emotions, but about solid, concrete facts. I think if you, you're engaging with it more. It's, it's like in the same way as museums evolved from being just collections of exhibits to try and find ways to engage particularly children, but everyone to interact and to, to see what's being presented in a way that they can relate to, a way they can see uh, as being alive rather than just some object that seems distant and is behind a glass case. And I think that's what the most exciting historical fiction does. It gives you the sense that you're there, or at least what it would have been like to be there. So we're moving on to... Um... Your next two choices, which I'm going to keep as a pair because they're both by Kate Atkinson. So we have Life After Life and A God in Ruins, um, published two years apart and both concerning the same family. So we start with Life After Life. It's a very literal title, actually, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's about, uh, I think the idea from what I read about Kate Atkinson's thoughts on the novel was the idea of what would happen if you had the chance to keep reliving your life over and over again and it's about Ursula Todd um who it's such a it's so beautifully done it's it's because this is this is something obviously that many authors and writers have have looked at but it's so beautiful because it all starts with you know on a winter's night in 1910 a baby is born draws a breath and then dies and then the next page is the same thing again except the baby doesn't die and then she, so this happens, she dies at different stages in her life all through the book until she finally gets to the end. And it's just the most remarkable piece of writing. But it deals very much with living through the Second World War and the Blitz in London. And I just thought the sense of time and place was so remarkable in how it was written. There's, there was a, a small episode where Ursula goes back to her little flat and it's very cold and she turns on a little gas heater and just the way that the whole thing is described you could just see it it was i just thought it was an incredible novel a really interesting way to explore such an important time in history and it's actually a, a it's not just a, a trope but it's strangely i think it's a trope that's emerged from um more modern technology it's it's a it's video game logic is of the being able to keep reloading and live a life over and over again. Uh, it was explored in uh, the Tom Cruise movie, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, and to some extent Groundhog Day as well, this idea. I think Nietzsche posited it, that if we could keep reliving our lives over again, we'd, we'd eventually get it right. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it, that it's video game logic. Um, <laughs> and I guess as well, God in Ruins, we have a different kind of video game because... Uh, this concerns Ursula's brother, Teddy, who is a bomber pilot during a very similar period. Yeah, it was... Again, if I had to choose between the two, I think I preferred A God in Ruins just because Teddy was such a, a heartwarming character. He was, so, he was such a lovable guy. And uh, it was his experience... I mean, there's only a relatively small amount of the book is to do with his experience as a bomber pilot pilot during the war and the rest of the book is about the rest of his life, his childhood and what happened after the war um, and again it's it's just the most remarkable thing, you become so involved in everything that happens to him and again the, the descriptions of 
the bombing of Germany during the Second World War are it's it's so emotive, um, even though it does it only forms a relatively small part of the book. And then, of course, we go on, and it's his relationship with his daughter as well, isn't it? And then um, your final, final choice uh, is Any Human Heart by William Boyd. Ah, uh, this is definitely a favourite of both of us, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, we converge again here. Yeah, yes. <laughs> which has that brilliant, brilliant quote from Henry James on the opening page, which is, never say you know the last word about any human heart, which I love. As they're all, it sounds very warm, but essentially the fact that we're all unknowable as well. Mm. Yes, and there's a bit early on in the book where they talk about the fact that every life is both ordinary and extraordinary, which I really like too. Uh, I just you're talking there about the character in Gagodin Ruins, um, finding his wife has died. I, it was one of many times during Any Human Heart where I found myself blubbing away um, because Logan Mountstuart just is he is he's such a compelling character because he is not. A hero. He is not um, always sympathetic. He he keeps messing up. You know that, that that's what I liked about it was it showed the way in which um, he was shaped by his experiences and other ways in which his personality uh, attempted to shape the world around him, often um, with adverse consequences. Uh, and and it is a history of the twentieth century. That's Absolutely. what was so striking about it. And I love the internet. Logan Mitchell, of course, is a completely fictional character. And the book is told through his journals of, of his life. But he keeps bumping into real people. He had mm. a friendship with Ernest Hemingway. And um, he was recruited during the war by uh, Ian Fleming to become a naval intelligence officer. And it's yeah, all Bahamas, these... wasn't it? Or yes, the yes. It was all these little interactions that, for some reason, you just find completely thrilling when a fictional character interacts with a real person. I think it's when, when a fictional character inter in, interacts with a... a historical figure and it's done in a way that you that's convincing yes. that's really exhilarating yes i think that was quite inspiring to us the idea that you could include uh genuinely um significant historical figures but you kind of had to earn the right to include them you know you had to know your stuff and you had to to, to make it seem plausible that your character's interaction with them would be believable to the reader yeah but i, I any human heart was just one of those books that it was so emotional from first page to last. Let's discuss your favourite bookshop, which you told me a bit about already, um, and it sounds fabulous, and I think you always come away from there with, with several bits of swag of your own as well. <laughs> Definitely. Um, it, it's quite unfortunate we don't have an a independent bookshop close to where we live, but any time we're up north, anywhere in the region of Aberfeldy, we go to the Watermill Bookshop which is in a converted water mill and it's just the most beautifully converted building and it really is like an oasis of peace and calm. They have a wonderful selection of books. I very rarely leave without buying several <laughs> and um, it, it's just they've just done the most remarkable job of the place. I think the selection there is, is very interesting. There isn't mm. a massive um, amount of space uh, and yet the selection always seems to be intriguing. You know, it's the kind of place where you just find yourself in one corner of the shop for 10, 15 minutes and and, uh, and, and then another corner of the shop for another period of time and you just find things. I, I um, picked up Michio Kaku's was it The Future of the Mind, it was called, and it was just full of... You're just browsing it in the shop. I, I could <laughs> read in the first few pages, my, I could feel my head already start to spin. I thought, this is totally for me. And it... it 
fed into um, my novel Places in the Darkness because it was very much about the implications of how technology might change um, neuroscience in the future. And it's, that's what I love about it. You go into a bookshop and you pick up a book you didn't know existed and all of a sudden you've got an idea for a novel. Yeah, it's that ability to browse that really makes it, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, soon you will be on the shelves as Ambrose Perry and uh, hopefully many people will, one, deliberately buy and secondly browse as well. Um, thank you both very much for joining me. It's been great to have you here. I shall leave you to enjoy the rest of the book festival, What Remains. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Canon Gate Books and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. The Way of All Flesh by Ambrose Parry is out now. And to get a full list of what this week's authors recommended, visit readlikearwriter.co.uk. And we'd really love to hear what you think, so do tweet us at readlikeapod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.